Today's scripture is from the book of Job, chapters 14, verses 7 to 17, and chapter 19, verses 23 to 27, and you can find those on pages 425 or 429, and 429 in the Blue Pew Bibles. From Job 14, for there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. And from Job 19, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to this passage, we come before you desperately in need uh, that you would uh, begin in us uh, anew, if maybe for the thousandth time, that, um, that process of seeking wisdom, uh, that process of coming before you uh, knowing you to be a great God, um, full of awe, uh, full of wonder, full of might, um, full of steadfast love, abounding uh, in mercy and grace towards your people. Father, your word tells us that it is these things uh, that lead us to fear you, that it's because there's forgiveness with you uh, that you may be feared, that it's your kindness that leads us uh, towards repentance. Um, Father, as we've been studying the fear of the Lord uh, in this season and doing so in the context of suffering, you have um, you've put before us a word which is, uh, by equal turns, bracing, uh, at times difficult, um, hard to read, painful, um, and at the same time, encouraging, uh, merciful, um, because it speaks to us of a God uh, who wants to hear uh, the deepest cries of our hearts, uh, even those uh, groanings 
that come up uh, from our souls inarticulate. Um, Holy Spirit, we are thank you. Uh, we thank you that, that, that when that's the prayer uh, of, of our hearts, uh, that you intercede on our behalf uh, with groanings too deep for words. Lord, you know uh, the cares and concerns uh, of your people. Uh, you know the, um, the struggles, uh, struggles with health, uh, struggles with work, uh, struggles in relationships, um, situations that seem uh, beyond repair, uh, beyond hope uh, of, of reconciliation. Father, you know our joys. Uh, you know our, our triumphs. You know the ways that we are um, basking in the gifts uh, that you have showered uh, in our lives. You know that for most of us, uh, our lives consist of those two things um, mixed together. Father, we, we pray um, that even as we lay those things before you, we would do it as a people, um, that we would truly be able um, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, Father, that, that no one in this room uh, would be alone, uh, whether in joy or in sorrow, um, but that we would be able to bear these things to you uh, as, as one people, uh, as, you, as you knit us together. Father, we pray for your spirit to be present now uh, as, we, as we come before your word, uh, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us your light uh, to be able to see what you are saying to us. Um, and how your words uh, need to shape us uh, and form us, uh, challenge and confront us in some places, and uh, encourage and comfort us in others. Thank you that it's your spirit uh, who has caused these words to be inspired, and that, and that again, as we read them and study them, um, illuminates them uh, to our own hearts uh, and to our minds. Thank you that at every step, um, your word uh, is... Um, uh, among your saving acts uh, toward your people. Um, Father, uh, it is our prayer, um, as it always is, um, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, when we were last together, uh, looking at the book of Job, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Job's friends. Uh, we looked at these um, miserable comforters, um, as, as he calls them. Um, and one of the things that Bradley pointed out was that um, when God shows up, what he rebukes them for um, is, in a sense, their theology their understanding of God. Um, when God shows up at the end of the book um, and rebukes Job's friends, what he says to them in chapter 42, uh, he says to Eliphaz, one of the three, he says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So he doesn't say to them so much, I rebuke you for being bad friends, although they, they were pretty lousy friends. Uh, they were miserable comforters. Um, what he rebukes them for uh, is that they have spoken so poorly of them. It, apparently, it is the case um, that it really matters how we think of God. 
And what we're going to see in this passage um, is that even as Job is in the midst of suffering and in the midst of agony, um, in these chapters here in 14 and 19, we get some hint of what hope he is clinging to. And what we'll see um, is that in contrast to his friends uh, who speak poorly of God, um, Job is able to speak well of God. Job, as uncertain as he is about who he is, as uncertain as, as he is about where his life is going, um, he has every reason to, to doubt um, that his life will ever be repaired, but he's clinging fiercely uh, to God and to God's identity, to who God is. Um, if you remember, the friends, their idea of God was very simple, very logical, actually very easy to get your head around. God is a God of justice, they said. Um, God rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked. And so they invite Job to draw the obvious conclusion from his own life. And in fact, by the end uh, of the book, they're doing more than just kind of, you know, gently inviting Job to draw the obvious conclusion. They're, they're, they're all out accusing him um, of being wicked, of being unjust uh, in ways that are, that are really unfair. Job, uh, through all of it, maintains his innocence, maintains that uh, he is, as he's been declared to be uh, by the narrator of this book, that he's blameless and upright, uh, that he's a man who fears God and turns away from evil. From Job's point of view, um, the view of God that his friends are offering is just unacceptable because it's just not true. In contrast to that, he's able to speak rightly um, of, of God. Here, here's the, here are the things that we're going to see in this, in this passage. Um, that first of all, that Job is going to cling to God's identity as his creator. The fact that God is his creator is going to matter a lot to Job because it's going to really emphasize for him the utter absurdity of death and of, and of decay. And as much as there's great tension and confusion for Job, um, he's going to hold on to the fact that God is his creator, and that makes death in some ways absurd. Um, but secondly, and directly following from that, he's clinging to the hope of a God who not only creates out of nothing, but a God who can bring life out of death. We'll see that the hope that he's really clinging to um, is hope for resurrection. Nothing short of that. And then the third thing that he's going to be clinging to is the promise of a redeemer. Because he knows that the real tension um, in his life is not just a matter of he has a body that is decaying uh, and is subject to death. The real tension um, is that he's a sinful man. Um, that he's one who can't stand in the presence of a holy God. Um, and that tension has to be dealt with. And he's going to cling to this hope um, of, a, of a redeemer. Um, these chapters are, I think, tremendously encouraging. I think the whole book of Job um, is encouraging um, because at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, Job is described as one who, again, is blameless and upright, who fears God, who turns away from evil. Um, and even though he's not a perfect man, he's held up in this book as being a good man and as being a man who has true faith, whose faith doesn't waver. 
I think what's really encouraging about this whole book is the fact that when we look at Job and we see how he prays through the experience of suffering, we're, we're meant to take this as a picture of what true faith looks like in the midst of suffering. And this is encouraging because it means, as we've gone through the book, it means that cries of anger, cries of lament, cries of despair, cries of great confusion, all of these things are consistent with faith, are consistent with one who's described as being blameless and upright and one who fears God. Um, At the end of the book, we know, of course, that Job isn't even going to know everything that he could know. He's never going to hear about these conversations that took place between God and Satan. So he's a man who has true faith, even though he doesn't have all the information. This is really encouraging for you and me. Um, For those of us who have finite brains and are trying to know an infinite God in the midst of a sometimes incomprehensible world, um, the book of Job is a great encouragement. So I want to look at these three things that Job is able to cling to. First, that God is his creator. Um, Secondly, that his hope ultimately is for resurrection, for life beyond death. And thirdly, that he clings uh, to the promise of a redeemer. Right at the beginning, he lays out the problem of the absurdity of, of death. So back in in chapter 14, where we started in verse 7, right away Job draws this comparison between a tree and a man. He says there's hope for a tree if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Um, I remember growing up in California, sometimes we would go for a long drive, and we would end up driving through the mountains. You'd be driving through these forests. And, And sometimes you'd turn a corner, and you'd come to a place where there had been a forest fire, Right? Um, now, this, this, was, this was back before fire season in California was just all year long. Um, but forest fires have always been, you know, somewhat frequent events in California. Um, you know, at a certain frequency, they're actually good uh, for the forest. But you'd turn the corner, and, and you would go from this thick, lush forest, you know, of, of redwoods that would be blocking out the sun to just nothing, you know, or like a few... Um, you know, there'd be a, a, a few stumps left, you know, but they'd be all black and charred, um, and everything would be empty. And you would look at that, and it was like driving through the surface of the moon. You know, you, you just think, like, nothing's ever going to live here ever again. But, in fact, if you came back a year later, you'd see the green shoots, right? You'd, you'd see the life coming back. Because these trees, as long as their root system is, is healthy, they're going to come back, Right? Job is saying, this is true of trees. The problem is that it's not true of people. Job says, if a man dies and is laid low and breathes his last, then where is he? Uh, He lies down. He rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake. Um, And and this, this is a problem. This is a problem because... The way creation is described back in Genesis, the apex of God's creation, the high point, the climax of the whole thing is the creation of humanity. Um, Not of trees, as as wonderful as trees are. Uh, Not of animals, 
as wonderful as, as they are. It's the creation of humanity. When God makes man in his own image and gives him this role in the garden to serve, we talked about this in adult ed today, in some ways to serve as a king and a prophet and a priest, and makes him in his own image and puts him there to lead all of creation in singing God's praises. I don't know if you remember uh, last summer when we looked at all those psalms in David's life. One of them was Psalm 57, which is a psalm of lament, but in the middle of it, David says, I will awake the dawn. Right? He doesn't say, I'm going to get up really early with the dawn. He says, I'm going to get up before the sun rises and tell it to get up. I'm going to lead all of creation in singing God's praises. That's what humanity is supposed to do. And that means that human death is a problem. See, the, the praises of God are never supposed to cease. Those are supposed to be unending. And yet... Scripture is clear. Psalm 115 says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. And in Isaiah 38, it says, Sheol, that's the same word that Job used here, just means the grave. Sheol does not, does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope uh, for your faithfulness. In death, there is no praise uh, to God. And so this presents a conundrum. If the praises of God are never supposed to end, but if humanity is heading towards death, what's that about? How's that going to be resolved? And here's where we see Job clinging to hope. Not in his own clean conscience. You know, he, he, he has maintained his innocence. And he's maintained that his conscience, at least with respect to the things his friends are accusing him of, is clean. But that's not the hope that he clings to. Um, look at what he says. If a man dies, this is 14.14. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call, and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. Again, this is, this is encouraging. If, you, if you're thinking Job's got a clean conscience, Job is a good man, Job is blameless and upright, you know, and so he's got grounds to pray the way that he's praying, but I don't, right? My conscience isn't clean. Like, if that's your concern, it's really important to see that where Job pins his hope is not on his own clean conscience. It's on who God is. And in this case, it's on the fact that he is his creator, that Job can say, I am the work of this God's hands. Um, we sang uh, Psalm 139 earlier this evening. Job can say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am known deeply uh, by this God. And that's the source of his hope. Um, why is that? Why is it a source of hope um, that God is the creator. And that, by the way, next week we're going to come to God showing up. We're finally going to get to God speaking in the book of Job. And what we're going to see is that when he shows up in chapter 38, the main thing that he says is, I am your creator. He spends several chapters just parading creation before Job. And there's that beautiful beginning um, uh, to what he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the um, uh, when the what was it? All the, all the stars of the morning uh, sang and all the sons of God rejoiced 
think I'm flipping some of those, but he presents himself as Job's creator. Why is that such a source of hope? When we say that God is our creator, we're not simply talking about where we came from way back in the past at some point. Um, We do mean something about our origins, about where we came from, about where everything came from. But to say that God is our creator is much more a statement about the fact that there is something rather than nothing right now than it is a statement about something that God made way back in the past as though he just set it spinning and then could walk away from it. Um, We sometimes forget this. You know, we sometimes talk as though the world and everything in it is just kind of running, right? And it's, it's running in it's sort of its normal way. You know, the sun rises, the sun sets. There's things that we can expect. And, 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 and every once in a while, we want God to come and intervene, right? And so we pray for God to heal someone of sickness, which is a good thing. We should pray uh, for God to heal. Uh, we should pray for God to help us through uh, an exam or a job interview. Um, we should pray for friends and neighbors Um, to come to know him, right? But the mistake is when we think that what we're asking for is for God to show up and be present as though he normally weren't, as though he normally were far removed and were distant and things were just kind of going of their own accord. Creation has no of its own accord. The, The creation has no independent autonomy, that it's just there, Um, creation only exists at every second, at every moment because God is its creator because he is its sustainer and that means that at this very moment God is near Augustine said God is nearer to me than I am to myself and that is true all of the time and to say that God is a God of love I mean, think about this. God, in and of himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, has everything he needs in and of himself. He's enjoying perfect relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. He's not lonely. He doesn't lack anything. He didn't create because he was bored or because the creation would add anything to him. So to say that God is a God of love means in contrast to the way we love things, he doesn't love in order to get something from the beloved. His love is perfectly pure. It's a love that literally calls into existence what is not God. A love that literally creates difference in order to love the other. That's so different from you and me. Um, Martin Luther had a great way of putting this. Um, So Luther is best known for 95 theses that he wrote in 1517, right? Well, one year later, he was right back at it. He wrote 28 more theses. Um, I don't know if he just had a thing for theses or if they were having a moment. I'm not sure what it was. But the 28 theses he wrote in 1518 came to be called the Heidelberg Disputation. Um, And the 28th of those theses was was this. I'm paraphrasing a bit. Um, He said... The love of man 
is drawn to what it finds attractive. But God makes attractive that which he loves. God does not love us because he finds us beautiful. God loves us, and that makes us beautiful. Um, there's nothing that we bring uh, to him uh, that he needs or that draws, draws him to us. He loves us because he loves us, because that is who he is, because that is the center of his character. Job is able to find hope in this because the same God who creates something out of nothing, that love that brings something out of nothing also brings beauty into being. That's the first thing that, that Job is, is clinging to. The second thing that he's clinging to is that the same God who loves something out of nothing and who loves beauty into existence also loves life out of death, brings life right out of death. He has this great hope for resurrection. He's said this already in chapter 14. All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. That's a reference uh, to, uh, to resurrection. But then listen to this in chapter 19, uh, verses 26 and 27. And listen, listen to the physicality of this, right? This is not some otherworldly, you know, ethereal afterlife that Job was hoping for. This is, this is resurrection of life in all its materiality. He says, yeah, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. I love that reference. My eyes, these eyes, the ones in my head, are going to see my God. On the one hand, it's true that he is hoping for vindication. So if you look at, at verses 23 and 24, just before that, he said, Oh, that my words were written, that they were inscribed in a book. And it's, it's, and it's wonderful that that ends up happening, right? I mean, we're here thousands of years later reading that book. Uh, his words were written down. But his hope is for much more than this. He doesn't just want someone later in history to look back and, and for him to be vindicated. He wants to be there. He wants to see God with his own eyes in his own flesh. What he's doing here is he's, he's holding this tension. If death is absurd, um, if death can't be the final end for those that God has called into his service to sing his praises and to lead creation in his praises for all eternity, then it can't be the end. And he's hoping beyond hope. He has no way of seeing, he hasn't seen resurrection. But he's hoping beyond hope that God, the same God who called something out of nothing must somehow be able to call life from death. Holding a, a tension like that, this is a lot harder than, than the more, you know, reasonable um, things that were offered um, by the world, Right? I mean, you know, materialism takes pain and suffering very seriously, but essentially says that's, that's all there is. I mean, there's no hope for anything beyond that. It just, it just is what it is. It doesn't mean anything, uh, and there's no hope. Um, and then other points of view, uh, you know, there are, there are faiths, you know, like, like the Buddhist faith, which on the other hand would say that actually the pain and the suffering, that's not real. That's an illusion. Christianity is unique 
in being able to take the pain and the suffering and the brokenness of the world very seriously and to say, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is wrong. You know, what you feel in your gut that this is wrong, that's right. You're right about that. It takes that seriously, and at the same time, it maintains a hope that as much as this is not the way things are supposed to be, there is a God in heaven, and he is able and he is willing. He is powerful and full of love to be able to do something about that. And we don't see it now, but we cling to this hope uh, beyond hope. We're coming into this season of Advent starting next week, and, and one of my very favorite Advent quotes is something that Bonhoeffer wrote from prison. And he would have written this probably only five months before he was executed. Um, from prison, he wrote a letter, and, and one of the things he said was, you know, being here in prison where all you can do is wait and hope, and you're totally dependent on a hand from outside to open the door, it's not a bad picture of Advent. Um, it's not a bad picture of the centuries in which Israel was waiting for the Messiah. It's not a bad picture of where we find ourselves now, still waiting, waiting for God to put all things to right and for him, for him to come again. Um, and I would just ask you, as we, as we enter into this season of Advent, maybe this is a thing to pray about. Where is it that you're tempted to give up hope? Where is it that you're tempted to lower your expectations, um, to adopt a more reasonable view um, that says that things just are what they are, uh, and, there's, and there's no real hope for things to ever get better. Um, Advent can be a hard season if you challenge yourself in that way. Um, but my encouragement would be, let's, let's do that together. Um, let's even try to talk about it you know, at prayer meetings, at community groups. Where is it that we're tempted to lose hope, to lower our expectations? Where is it that we need others to intervene for us, to pray for us, that our hope would be sustained? Job is clinging to the hope that God is his creator and that there's hope for resurrection. But he has hope for one more thing. Um, and that's hope for a redeemer. And this is the one that's going to bind it all together, right? He knows, uh, as I said, that the real tension in the world um, is that, again, he's described as being blameless and upright. That doesn't mean he's perfect. Uh, he knows that he's a sinful man. If you, if you flip up to chapter 13 from where we've been, and you look at uh, verse 23, for instance, he says, "'How many are my iniquities and my sins?' Make me know my transgression and my sin. Um, so he's aware that he's a sinner. Uh, he's aware uh, that he is a sinful man and that God is holy. And you have to think that even as he's, you know, constantly asking, I want to see God. I want God to show up. I want an audience before the Almighty. Um, his heart's got to be racing as he says that, because what if God does show up? You know, and what must he think when God actually does? We'll take a look at that next week. Um, but this connection, of course, between um, death uh, and sin uh, runs all through Scripture. 
And this is going to be something that's going to be really pressing on Job, given the context um, of, of chapter 19. Um, his friend Bildad, another of his friends, has just pressed home um, this, this just chilling portrait of the fate of the wicked uh, in the face of God's holiness. And again, pressing job to draw the logical conclusion that your suffering must mean uh, that, you are, that you are a sinner. But Job, again, is holding to this, to this tension. Um, and he knows that his sin has to be dealt with. I mean, look, if you look back at chapter 14 again, the last verses that we read, after he said, you would call and I would answer you, you would long for the work of your hands. Listen to what he says next. Chapter 14, verse 16. For then you would number my steps, you would not keep, keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. Job knows that somehow, for his life to be sustained, his sin has to be dealt with. It has to be covered. He has no way of knowing just what kind of covering is coming. But that's what he says, you would cover over uh, my iniquity. Um, This is the same tension that we've been looking at, that the the kids in communicants class have been looking at. I know they've been memorizing uh, Exodus 34, right? Um, Moses says to God, let me see your glory. God says, you can't see my glory. You can't see my face, but I'll hide you in the rock, and I'll cause my glory to pass in front of you. And when he does, it says in verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This again is the tension uh, that, that, that Job is dealing with. How is it that God is both a God who is gracious and merciful at the center of his character for a thousand generations, but who at the same time takes sin seriously and will not simply clear the guilty. How will sin be dealt with if God is also a forgiving and a gracious God? And this is where Job speaks these inspired words. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. Redeemer, in this this case, what Redeemer would mean, it would be somebody who would stand in the breach for you when you couldn't stand yourself. Uh, It would be somebody who would be your advocate. Um, The most famous use of of the word Redeemer is in the story of Ruth, right? Um, In Ruth, her husband Boaz is introduced as a Redeemer, someone whose role is, is actually, if there's no one else, would be to marry Ruth um, because her husband has died. Um, And if she has children, the children will bear the name of her dead husband. The Redeemer is actually standing as a substitute for the dead in order to, to continue that line. So this is truly somebody that stands in for you where you can't stand uh, yourself. That's the hope uh, that Job is clinging to here. Um, 
the only redeemer that could possibly suffice in this case. And, and this is where we are able to see how all of this is pointing ahead uh, to Jesus in a way that Job would have had. Um, well, it's not clear what kind of knowledge he would have had of that. Um, The only Redeemer that could suffice to stand for Job, to seal up his transgressions in a bag, to cover over his sin, to bear the wrath that, that Job asked to be hidden from in the grave. You would need a Redeemer that could somehow last as long as God himself. You really would need the Redeemer to be God himself. And that would be a crazy thing for Job to ask for. But what we get to see in Jesus is that that's exactly who God provided as a Redeemer. That it would be God himself that would take on our flesh. That it would be God himself that would take on our nature. That it would be God himself that would, in our nature, take on our sin would suffer everything that we've suffered, would suffer everything that Job has suffered, um, and in fact would suffer one thing that Job never does suffer. Job spends this entire book calling for God and asking him to show up. And finally in chapter 38, God shows up. But Jesus, when he's on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is silence. There, there is nothing. The Father turns his face away from the Son, from the Redeemer. It's something that Jesus suffered in our place so that you and I and Job and everyone who's found in him would never have to suffer that. I want to make just two practical points as we, as we conclude this as we look at the hope that Job is clinging to, hope that God is his creator and will not abandon the work of his hands, hope that that means resurrection, and hope that God provides a redeemer. Um, the two practical points. First, um, if Job is able to pray with this kind of boldness, is able to, 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 to go before God, um, we ought to be all the more bold. We ought to be all the more able uh, to go to him. Um, and let me be specific about one, um, one application of that um, that actually clarifies something from the last time I preached, which was, which was in Job 3. If you remember, when we looked at Job 3, that was a dark chapter, right? That was, that was where Job is making this lament. Um, and, and there is no articulation of hope. There, there, there's no cheerful stuff at all in Job 3. It was a hard chapter to read. Um, now, I might have slipped, I think, uh, from saying that there's no articulation of hope to saying that Job is without hope. And if I did that, I want to take that back. I want to take that back because I want us to know, I want us to be very clear, that the act of lament, whether you can articulate hope or not, the act 
of crying out to God from the depth of despair, that is a hopeful act. It is always a hopeful act. In fact, it might be, in some sense, it might be the truest form of faith that we have, to have literally nothing else to bank on, nothing else to pin our hopes on, except to say, here is where I am, here is my suffering, here is my despair, and I am putting that before God, and that's all I can do. That is a hopeful act, and I want us to be encouraged um, that because we've seen so much more than Job has, because we've seen Jesus, we know his name, and we have seen what he has done for us, we've seen resurrection, we've actually seen the first fruits of the very hope that Job was, was, was clinging to. That should make us more bold. The other application is I just want us to, to, to stop and ask, why is it that Job, um, what is it about his character that would lead him to be able to cling to this kind of hope in the midst of his suffering? And, and one thing that I want us to notice is that at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, what is it that we see Job doing habitually? Remember? What is it that he did continually? Um, he was interceding for other people. His was a life of prayer. And when it wasn't a life of prayer for himself, it was always a life of prayer for other people. He was constantly interceding. And I think these two points go together. Because I don't think it would be fair to say, just you, on your own, be bolder. Right? That is not what God has asked us to do. God has given us to each other. If you're struggling to be bold, if you're struggling to cling to hope, if you're struggling to cry out to God, try doing it with other people. Invite some other people to come alongside of you. If you know someone in this congregation that is struggling, see if they'll sit down with you. See if you could pray for them. Or offer to pray with them another time. I think the more time that we spend interceding for others the more we'll see our character grow and the more we'll find ourselves people um, who in the midst of darkness and despair have a hope uh, that we can cling to. Um, it's good to be coming to this table. Um, it's good to have the opportunity to be fed, uh, to recognize that ultimately we need our faith to be fed for any of this to be true of us. So before we come to this table, um, would you bow your heads with me and let's pray.